welcome to Tell Us a Story, the podcast dedicated to the stories that connect us through our shared life experiences, as well as the stories that reveal the sometimes stark differences. Only by truly listening to one another can we bridge the gaps that divide us, fostering empathy, respect, and kindness with one another. In this episode, the Reverend Terence McCarthy explores the impact of a life-altering health event on himself and those around him. He shares why he personally no longer likes the word recovery and why he prefers to focus instead on the power of persistence and striving in his life. I guess I want to begin in talking about last 10 years of my life, which includes um, a stroke in um, May of 2016 and uh, a diagnosis of primary progressive multiple sclerosis um, in January of that year, and then the the stroke which occurred in May of 2016. When I was uh, asked to do this podcast and speak about my time after my stroke, was asked to speak about my stroke recovery. And that's a word that's frequently used, and it makes sense to use it. That's what happens after you have an injury or an illness. You recover from it, right? But I can't stand that word. For me, given the place I was in after my stroke and how physically and emotionally and spiritually I felt not myself and felt in a hole in all of those ways. How was I possible? What was I going to regain? What was I going to recover? All of that seemed so far away that I hated that word. I just wanted to be able to continue to be. Because here I was in a tilt wheelchair. They weren't even letting me get up from the chair to stand pivot transfer. And I knew I could stand pivot transfer, damn it. Um, but they weren't even letting me do that. So a tilt wheelchair, for you who don't know, is um, it's not one you can push with your arms. You're cradled in. It's like a big adult baby stroller. And you're, you're, you're completely supported and locked in. And you can't move yourself. So it's really a, a completely dependent situation. And here I was in this support wheelchair. And the last word I wanted to hear was recovery, because I was thinking, what the hell am I ever going to recover? Here I am in this chair. Here I am, one side of my body is completely unable to be moved and is basically in the same position now, eight years later after the stroke. It'll be eight years in May. As it was then, in terms of, not in terms of my function and ability to do things, but in terms of my strict muscular Um, and motor abilities on that side of my body. Absolutely no return below my shoulder or no return below my hip. And, And I knew from my time as a therapist, if you don't see return within 8 to 12 weeks, it's not coming back. I mean, didn't mean I didn't work on it. Didn't mean I didn't have stim and uh, exercise constantly and wasn't stretching constantly every day, stretching that in the hope that maybe some of it would return one day. But, but I knew cognitively and rationally after two months it wasn't going to. And so what the heck, and go back to this, 
what the heck was I ever going to recover or regain back? I had my stroke while I was at my son's Little League Baseball League game. He was up to bat. Thank God he didn't realize, even the ambulance, when the ambulance pulled up, because he was still on the bases, that it was for me. Until he came in. This is eight years later. It's still hard to talk about. I knew I had the stroke. I knew something happened. When, because I kept meticulous count of his balls and strikes when he was at bat. And because he, and, he hated to walk. So he's up to bat. And I keep track of these. Every, every bat at every game for six years at that point. And, and I started to. And then I didn't. I lost count. And I felt something go through my body. I'd been having spasms related to the MS. I've been having lots of. Uh, tremors on both sides of my body. I was having lots of um, kind of electrical shocks when I would be in the wrong position. It's all related to MS. And, but this was different. This was sudden, and it was... I don't know if I lost consciousness, but I know I wasn't there because I wasn't keeping track of the balls and strikes. And the ump had a loud voice, and we were right behind or real close to the to, to home base. And, um, and I was thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, not here. Anywhere, God, but not here, not here. And, and it went through me, and I came to when the ump said, ball four, take your base. And that kid, oh, he hated to walk. So I started to cheer, I started to shout, yell, yell to him, Luke, it's, o- it's okay. Luke, remember, you're a weapon. You're a weapon out there on the bases. And, and so he chugged the first base. I don't think he heard me. And I turned to Susan, who was to my right. And we were in both those chairs, camp chairs there. And I turned to her and I said, did that sound weird? I don't like my voice. And something, something happened. And she said, no, I can hardly understand you. Oh, I said. And our friend, whose parent, both parents had had strokes, came over. She was watching the game with us. And I don't know if Susan said something to her or how, how that came about. But, and all sorts of things were foggy. But um, she came over and asked if I could raise my arm. I don't know if I did at that point or not. And she said, if you could stand up. And I said, I don't know why I couldn't. Why can't I stand up? But I don't think I did. Um, and so they didn't want me to try after that, but I kept wanting to try, and they kept holding me down, saying, no, 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 an ambulance is coming, an ambulance is coming. And I was like, what the f***ing an ambulance? I don't need a f***ing ambulance. It's an NMS thing. I, I'm going to be fine. So I started to argue about the ambulance. But because of all the emotions surrounding that, because my son was nine years old, because he would feel in the coming weeks and months that his father, his dad, he'd feel like his dad had died. And rightfully so. The person I was died that night. He couldn't look at me for over a year, especially those first few months. That was a huge part of me, of my whole. My son couldn't even look at me. It was an emotional hole. It was a family hole. 
it was a it was a hold for me for faith. I'm a pastor, a person whom my faith has always been a part of who I am. The only prayer I could possibly think of is Psalm 120, is Psalm 22, 122, 22nd. Now I can't even remember that. My short term is gone. Um, and that's probably MS. But, um, you know, it's attributed to Jesus on the cross. Um, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a Christian, you know those words of Jesus. As as a Jew or or uh, maybe even even a Muslim person, um, you may know the words of that psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to describe the author's situation and lament, complaint. You know, all my enemies surround me. My bones are dried up. The dogs are at my feet. Oh God, oh God, I am less than a worm. It's some of the language. And that's what's so beautiful about the Psalms is this vivid language of telling the story and creating these pictures. And that's the only prayer I could manage. So I was in that hole. And it was a hole I felt I could never climb out of. My 80, let's see, 2016. Yeah, my 87-year-old father was coming to see me. He would come and he would push me in the tilt chair and, and be with me in the rehab hospital. Although he lived five hours away, never imagined my 87-year-old father coming to push his not-quite-50-year-old son and coming to celebrate my 50th birthday in a rehab facility, in a nursing home, basically, rehab unit of a nursing home, which was a wonderful birthday. A couple cousins came up. My family was there. They tried to make the best of it. But my plan for my 50th birthday was to take my almost 10-year-old son, and we were going to go out west, and we were going to do the national parks. I never had a foreboding that I would be disabled when I was older, but I was like, 50, I'll do it when I'm 50. That way, God forbid something happens afterwards. We'll still have that time. And, and so instead of being in the Tetons or, or being in, you know, the Arches, or, or the Grand Canyon, or being at Glacier National Park. I was sitting there in a wheelchair, unable to walk or even get up from the wheelchair, in a, in a rehab facility, sitting around a table with an umbrella on top of it, with my family. But that was my 50th birthday. But, um... But the, the stroke didn't affect any of that cognitive or language stuff that's so often associated with a stroke. But it, what it, did, it hit that in small part of the brain called the internal capsule, which is subcortical, so it's none of that thinking stuff. But it's, it's, it was right in that spot that controls motor actions. And it was on my right side of my brain, so it affected the left side of my body. Now, in terms of convenience, I guess... I was right-hand dominant, am right-hand dominant. Um, and if I wasn't before the stroke, I would be now anyway. But so I didn't lose like my dominant hand for writing um, or, or any other kind of tasks or for feeding myself or dressing. So it did knock out my weak side anyway. Or, or my, or, but you use your non-dominant side, if you're right-handed, you, your left side, more than you'd think. 
use it to stabilize paper on a on a desk. You use it to to do all sorts of um, of two-handed tasks, everything from opening a Ziploc bag to anything you can imagine at home during the day. When I was cooking for the first time in the year after my stroke, I you know I said, oh, I'm going to have a TV show, and I'm going to call it One-Armed, like unarmed, One-Armed in the kitchen. Because <laughs> it, it affects that so much, but I've been able to return to my cooking and stuff, which was always a great joy for me. So that's good. But you never realize how much you rely on both hands. Every single task, really, and, and packaging and everything else is dependent, and things you're asked to do in life is dependent for two-handed people because most of us have two hands. So that was an adjustment. The big picture is that after the stroke, I was in a hole. Talked about the chair I was in at first. And after about three weeks, I got moved to a manual wheelchair and could propel myself. So that was a good, good piece of it. But the physical effects were just one piece of the hole. And, and the other part of the stroke, which was really prevalent for me, may have been some because there was some cortical involvement, is I had complete disregard of my left side. I wouldn't look to it. I wouldn't touch it. My vision was fine. But I just, I mean, people were instructed, as I would have instructed me if I was my therapist, to, to they all approached me from the left side because they had to get me used to volitionally thinking, I've got to turn to the left. I've got to turn to the left. And if I can't find something, if I look for it hard enough or try to kick in my memory, or when I find it, sure enough, guess where it was? It was on the left side. So I'd be sitting there at the, on the tray table and my left arm would fall off. <laughs> and so I'd pass, I'd pick up and press the nurse call bell. I'd say, it's me, Terry, again. I've lost my arm again. Three or four times a day, I'd fall off the tray table. And, and I could do nothing to get it back up. <laughs> I lost my arm again. <laughs> And it's funny now, you know, I lost my arm. But, but it would really, that being in the chair, it was a hole. You go into a hole, it's the only way I can describe it. You go into a physical hole from which you just don't, don't see any way out of. You go into an emotional hole. How can this happen to me? The other part of my hole was, um, was my profession. After I married my wife, who was kind of elapsed or separated Lutheran, and we started attending a Lutheran church together, and we were incredibly welcomed by a small congregation, and it just, for her, put together her seeds and her yearnings, as, even as a young girl, um, to be a um, Lutheran pastor. And as she went through that process of entering and applying to seminary, it rekindled my seeds. I spent the first year of my high school in a preparatory program for the Catholic theological education to be a priest. And so I'd waited. I was 44 when I was ordained after a process in the seminary taking about eight years. I'd waited all that time, since I was 10 years old, and I first saw a priest behind the altar and would intone together with them the liturgy from my pew and raise my arms with them when in the Oran's position and different liturgical positions with my hands, I would do it not to imitate or mock them, but because I felt called to it from my seat to say those words of institution. You know, this is my body. 
this is my this is my this this bread is my body take and eat this is this cup of wine this cup is the cup in my blood take and drink do this in remembrance of me and and so that was with me from such a young age and for me to have attained the education finally and after a seven year process the age of 44 to be in this profession which was foundational. So here I am at this point, 50, five years into ministry. And I wasn't particularly happy in the congregation. It wasn't what I felt called to. I had all these years in healthcare. I felt called to being a healthcare chaplaincy. I was pursuing now that I had finally completed the mandatory year, the mandatory years of congregational service. And I was interviewing for chaplain positions. And then the stroke happened. And my greatest fear and part of my whole was I waited my whole life to do this, my whole life. Here I am doing it for five years, a little over five years. And I'm not sure what's happening with me neurologically with EMS. And I won't ever be able to do it again. It was being, I saw it as being taken away from me. When friends and colleagues, pastors, or even my family would come to visit, they'd ask or would come up, what's my greatest fear? especially with colleagues, my greatest fear was losing this profession that I worked for so long, that I longed for for so long. So that was all part of that whole. And the question was, how was I going to climb out of that hole? It wasn't about recovery, because I was in that hole. I just needed somehow to do something, somehow. So what that resulted for me was this idea of continual movement, of striving, which I call it now. I wouldn't have used that word then. But now as I reflect on it and reflect on scripture that talks about striving while you wait for all that God has prepared. Now for me, I see that continual movement. It's not even always movement forward. You hope it's purposeful, but sometimes it just feels like you're just moving. So you can move. But if you're in continual movement, which I tried to be, insisted on, God, if anyone tried to help me, I'd say, no, get away from me. Maybe not that bluntly, but basically, I know that was the vibe I put out to others because others would say, hey, you yell at me if I try to help you. I say, no, I'm persistent. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to shave myself. I'm going to shower myself. I'm going to dress myself because these are the things I can do. Colleagues who would come for lunch, we would meet every Tuesday for a text study to pr prepare for the text we were going to preach on possibly the coming Sunday. So those colleagues, one Tuesday afternoon at lunch when I was still those first three weeks after the stroke in that primary rehab hospital that I just spoke of, came one Tuesday and had lunch with me. That meant the world. So all that gave me hope out of that hole. But it was just, and it wasn't that insistence. It was about that stubbornness. Keywords. This idea of keep moving. This idea of being in the hole. This idea of persistence on my end. This stubbornness. I was going to achieve this. My mantra. My mantra through all of this, especially those first few months, is I will not be silenced. Because my speech, I could not get out my words out, even though I could think them and formulate them, and it wasn't a language problem. And, and so my mantra was, I will not be immobilized. 
and I will not be silenced. I insisted after four weeks that I was going to walk out of that rehab hospital, and I did. My wife was next to me. A wheelchair was behind me. I think my son was probably pushing the wheelchair. I walked out that door on my own. Somebody was holding my arm, but I took those steps out that door. I will not be silenced. I will not be immobilized. My wife referred to me as being obstinate. And it's still a difference of perspective we have, which she saw as a negative. I saw as an absolute necessity. A year after the stroke, or nine months, Luke started baseball season again. So this baseball field was down a hill in a bowl. You parked up top at the edge of the bowl, and you walked down the hill past the snack shack, where my wife often was working, where I would have, or, or did before the stroke. And um, I remember one afternoon, um, in those first years, I had no caution. I had no awareness of deficit, which is part of the, part of the stroke. So I come charging out of the car with my four-point, still my very institutional-looking four-point cane. And I come charging out and, and going at full pace walking, probably faster pace than I do now, even with, a, with my one-point cane or walking sticks, that, walking sticks that I make that I use. So I come charging out of there. And even before she sees me approach the slope, there goes my husband. He's going to fall flat on his skull and break it but I wasn't going to be deterred. I was going to get to that game. I was going to get to that chair or those benches next to that stadium where I was going to sit. And I was going to watch my boy play ball, even if all he did was walk. I spoke some about the tension between my wife and I after the stroke. But I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for her steady presence, despite her probably very justifiable anxiety about me coming home and me falling in the house. And she was not told a rosy picture. I don't think she was told fairly a picture of hope. She was basically told that I would need to be institutionalized or that I would need 24, seven, 24 hours, seven day a week care and that she would have to quit her job, which was also, she's also a pastor and job in ministry. And how, do we, how are we both unemployed? and care for our son and and exist in this capitalist world. But she persisted and stayed with me, and I'm so grateful for that. That was a huge part of the picture for me, this obstinance or persistence. I always talked about persistence being a gift of the Holy Spirit, but I checked, it's really not mentioned as one, <laughs> but in my mind it was. But there are things like fortitude and strength and Paul and a lesson I reflected on just the other day for a devotion that I write for students, for seminarians in my current role. Here is a pastoral presence at now the United Lutheran Seminary, which is the successor to the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg, here in these buildings and classrooms where I once was a student. Um, I wrote this devotion, and it was on letter from Peter where he cited Paul's letter, and it talked about striving with patience. And that was what this journey was about for me. I wrote an article 
It was published in The Living Lutheran in, in 2021 that was written in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, talking about some of my experiences of, uh, of grief. It was entitled not by me. I'm not great at titles. I don't title sermons or anything like that. It was entitled by the editors and very well done in that way. It was entitled Something New Emerges. And it was taken from my words that in the midst of this, and this is a point I want to make, that something new somehow emerges. My faith now is rooted on faithfulness. It's rooted on trust in God's embrace for us here in this life and trusting in some sort of an embrace. Who knows what it'll look like? But an embrace of our loved ones and ourselves in what is after this life. So that embrace, that faithfulness, and to be striving, Peter writes, striving while we wait for what is to come for the end. That The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and those who wrote those letters in their names, perhaps, believed that the end was, it was imminent. Jesus was coming back. He had just left. He was going to come back just like he left. It didn't happen that way. And so it's their, their instruction is even more prevalent to us and was prevalent, is prevalent to me to strive to strive with patience as we wait with patience. And for me, striving is that sense of continual movement. And I think that was maybe a gift to me of that stroke, is this idea that I continue to strive, I continue to engage in movement. My wife Susan was kind of nearing the end of a time of disability for herself, and the, and the, the synod called and said, you know, we know you're not up to full-time work. There's this position now. They want to contract with someone to serve as a chaplain for students apart from the uh, faculty and administrative position, someone that would be only dedicated um, in that role and not in terms of student assessment, but just be a resource and a, a pastor a pastor for the students. And... Um, there were issues with my wife's insurance, so she couldn't take a five to ten hour position at the seminary. And I remember saying to her, but they asked you, but don't you think that would be a fit? I knew I didn't have the endurance, this was 19, even three years after the stroke, to, to do a full-time position or even a half-time. But they're talking five hours a week. I'm not driving, but I thought I can take this rabbit transit service in here in Adams County. I can take it from my home for the few hours I would need to be in person at seminary. And after that, pandemic and Zoom and our online and virtual communications exploded. Um, so that's an added piece for me, and even when I'm not able to be on campus. But at that time, I said, it's perfect. And it was. And it emerged and came together. And and that's, that's, that's what I'm doing now, my ministry, even two, three years after the stroke that I was afraid I had lost forever. My profession, my call, had not. It was not lost. And it's also something that, that, that's so dear to me, and my, my voice is cracking. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be with students, this opportunity to see gifts and affirm gifts for students who come even from non-Christian backgrounds but have a calling to proclaim goodness and a calling to proclaim God's faithfulness. And, and a calling despite the fact that they've been hurt and injured by the church. So many of our students now are members of the LGBTQ community. And I'm in the position to affirm their gifts for ministry, to affirm that they're loved, even when they felt discarded. 
to affirm their gifts for ministry. And I can't imagine, can't imagine not doing that right now. If you're in this position, or if you know someone who's in this position, don't discourage them from being obstinate, from being persistent. Lift that up. It's what saved my life. And encourage them and advocate for them if they can't advocate for themselves. Be a pain in the ass. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Reverend McCarthy's story. A link to his article in Living Lutheran is available in the show notes, along with more details about this podcast. You can also visit our website at tellusastory.info for more information.